Welcome, everyone, to another Bitcoin Magazine interview. Today, I am with Brian Estes of Off the Chain Capital. Brian, I'm honored to have you on the show. You have just such an amazing history and story and a legendary history in the Bitcoin and crypto space. You you actually recently did an awesome interview with Pomp where you go into your, your story and you explain you know, why you've been in a wheelchair for so long and your career in finance and then ultimately in, in Bitcoin and crypto. For everyone here who wants to learn more about Brian, make sure to check out that Pomp podcast. But we're here to talk about Bitcoin. Brian, why don't you introduce yourself and, and jump into how you got into the Bitcoin space and some of your first things that you did uh, when you got here were. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for referencing the Pomp podcast. It's kind of funny, like when I actually did the podcast, it was called Off the Chain Podcast. And um, during the podcast or after the podcast was over, Pop and I were kind of comparing notes how we had both had the same name, right? He had Off the Chain Podcast and we had Author Chain Fund. And I, I think he kind of realized that we started using the name way earlier than he did. So you know, he, he changed the name over to Pop Podcast after that. So Wait, was it because um, of the conversation with you? Yeah, well, we have the trademark on Off the Chain. So for all things crypto and investment management, and all that. So. We, we didn't ask him to change the name. You know, actually, I told him, you know, you could continue to use it because it brings awareness to both. But I, I don't think he wanted to build a brand around something he didn't own. So, so he changed the name. We, we didn't ask him to do that. So, yeah, I, I got into, I, I learned about Bitcoin in 2013. I saw the Winklevoss twins on CNBC talking about Bitcoin when it was $100 per Bitcoin. And I come from traditional finance. Spent you know my first you know twenty five years doing you know managing money for endowments and foundations from two thousand four to two thousand fourteen as basically an outsourced CIO. I was managing about three hundred fifty million dollars for them, and then before that, I started in nineteen ninety as a stockbroker with a company called AG Edwards and Sons, and I was on the retail side for a few years, and then the last ten years I was an institutional equity broker. So I kind of grew up in traditional finance. So when I first learned about Bitcoin, I, I thought it was kind of a scam. Like I saw Cameron and Tyler on CNBC and I thought they were doing like a pump and dump. I, you know, I figured, you know, they own a bunch of Bitcoin and they're just trying to talk it up. So I, I started watching it when it was a hundred. I watched it to go to 400 and then Congress actually held hearings on it in 2014, whether or not to outlaw Bitcoin. And they decided not to outlaw it because of two reasons, I think. One was because that would drive all the innovation overseas, and they didn't want to do that. And two, I think they recognized that because it's a decentralized network based on open source internet protocol, that you can't stop it. You know, you can't outlaw Bitcoin. And so, you know, I think they realized that and they decided... You, you know, think people to, in Congress actually understand that concept? Yeah, I think they do. So a lot of people don't remember or realize that back in the early 90s, when the internet was first starting, it was only used for universities and for governments. And it wasn't until like 1992, 1993, that it was actually legal to do a commercial transaction or advertise on the internet. Before that law was changed, it was actually against the law to do a commercial transaction or advertise on the internet. And so Mark Andreessen, Netscape, and a lot of developers in the internet back in the early 90s petitioned Congress to change that law. And because Congress changed that law and allowed this innovation to happen, 
that's why we have all the internet jobs here. Not all the, the majority of the best internet companies are based in America. And we have Amazon, Yahoo, eBay, Google. You know, they built in America because that law was changed. So I think eventually what happens is that you know, Congress starts supporting blockchain more than they do today. And I think that started in 2014 with the realization, we don't want to drive the innovation overseas. So let's keep the innovation in the U.S. as much as possible and then move forward from there. So I definitely want to continue talking about that, but I definitely interrupted your sto- your genesis no, no, story. No, 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 no that's fine. So let's get yeah. back to that. Okay, yeah. so 2014, I watched Bitcoin go from 100 to 1,200, and then Mt. Gox got hacked, which was the largest custodian of Bitcoin. Bitcoin went from 1,200 down to 300, and I've always been a growth at a reasonable price or gram dot value investor. And when it drops, when Bitcoin dropped 70%, I decided to take a look and see what Bitcoin was all about. And you know, I figured maybe the suckers got washed out since it's down 70%. There might be some value there. And so I read the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, and right away it clicked with me. Like I, I could see almost like as clear as day that we were going to rebuild our entire financial system on blockchain technology. And I decided then to sell my practice to Wells Fargo and retire out of traditional finance. And I became a venture capitalist in the blockchain space. And I started knocking on doors and trying to make investments in blockchain startups. And that's how I got started in the industry in 2014. So I kind of want to dig into like why you think you were primed to get Bitcoin. Because like I think your story, obviously unique, but it kind of has like rhymes to other people's story where like you've heard about it. It was a scam. It went over your head and then you looked into it and you were ready to like understand Bitcoin's potential. Like your, yeah. your brain was ready for it. For me, I was into personal finance. I was already investing in stocks, but you know, I'm a young millennial. I, you know, I don't have the kind of experience you had, but for me, like it kind of made sense to me just because of like my money forward mentality. I'm kind of curious, like, what do you think like, Brian Estes in the moment of reading the white paper, like where was he mentally and why was Bitcoin intuitive to you? Yeah. So I, it was a combination of two things. So I had a traditional finance background that helped, but I think what was most important or more important was that I started coding when I was 14 years old. So this is 1982 when personal computers were first hitting the market and I had multiple software patents. And I think it was that computer science background and the, finance, you know, work history that I had that combined just in that one moment to allow me to, you know, understand what Bitcoin was. And and that's what, you know, enabled me to, I'm not to say see the future, but kind of see what this is going to lead to. And, you know, like I said, I, I, I understood that, you know, we were going to rebuild our entire financial system, which is a legacy system that's been built on for the last 60 years on old technology. You know, you go to some of these banks and they're still using Cobalt, Pascal, you know, these ancient coding languages to clear transactions and to manage their books. And there has to be something better than that. And I, you know, when I saw blockchain, I, I knew that the old languages I used to code in back in the 80s, I knew those were going to be obsolete. And, you know, we were, you know, rebuild this entire system on blockchain. 
All right. That, I mean, it makes sense. And like, obviously, because you have both perspectives, you understand how legacy and analog the traditional system is, and you understand what the internet and technology has kind of done to the world. So it makes sense that, you know, that combination allowed you to see it. So jumping into what you did when you became a venture investor, you've been a part of some unbelievably legendary deals, one of which is, you know, investing in Coinbase. Can you kind of talk about like what it was like navigating the venture landscape at the beginning and then kind of how it's evolved as the years have gone by. Yeah. So the first investment I made in the space was just Bitcoin, right? I needed to buy some Bitcoin. So I opened up a Coinbase account and bought a little bit of Bitcoin to figure out you know, how to do that. And then as I was buying larger and larger amounts, I couldn't do it through Coinbase. So I learned about Genesis, which is owned by Digital Currency Group. So I bought Bitcoin through Genesis and had it delivered to Coinbase. And as I started looking into the Coinbase business model, figuring out how they made money, it just made sense to me because at AG Edwards, where I was a stockbroker, we made money in a similar way. We charged commissions to buy and sell stocks. And that's all Coinbase was doing, just charging commissions to buy and sell Bitcoin. And so I wanted to make an investment in Coinbase, the equity. And so I worked my way up to Brian Armstrong asked him if I can get into the A round at the time. And he said, no. And he's like, who are you? I'm like, well, I'm a venture capitalist. He goes, where are you from? And I'm from a small town in Columbia, Illinois. And he was like, we don't know who you are. And basically, you know, you can't bring anything to the table, which I, I totally understand. You know, I didn't have anything to bring to the table except money. And, you know, they were oversubscribed anyway. So I, I got shut out of the A round. Then I heard rumors that the B round was about to happen. Contact him again. He basically said no again, but thank you for asking. And so I got shut out of the B round. And then what I resorted to was basically cold calling and networking and DMing employees at Coinbase to see if they had stock for sale. Like, you know, If you're an early employer at Coinbase, almost all of your net worth is tied up into Coinbase stock. So I tried reaching out to the employees to see if they'd be willing to sell their, some of their stock because you know, they may need liquidity, right? you know, may need a new home or they're getting married or having babies or, you know, getting to need a new car. And so, you know, I wanted to provide that liquidity. And I ended up reaching a couple of the Coinbase employees that were willing to sell some of their stock. And that was my first transaction as a VC in the space. So I wasn't providing VC money, but I knew that's one of the VC startup companies I wanted to invest in. And so I, I just worked my way into it. Awesome. Well, I mean, I think it kind of shows into your character and your grit and drive. Like even after getting shut out multiple times, you still found a way to make the investment happen and, and get access to Coinbase. And I'd be curious to see what's performed better, Coinbase or, or Bitcoin in those early days. I'm sure they both have done quite legendarily. So Bitcoin's done better. So, you know, Coinbase is up about 16x since 2014 when I bought it. And well, I guess it's probably worth a little bit more now since I hear they're going public. And then Bitcoin's up about 40x since then. And this is kind of a funny story too. So I met with one of the A16Z partners and I was working through her trying to get into Coinbase too since they provided the seed capital. And she was kind of like almost giggling at me. She was like, you know, why would you want to invest in Coinbase when you just can buy Bitcoin? And I was like, well... Since I come from traditional finance, owning companies is like the best way to create wealth, isn't it? And she's like, no. And she goes, like, our partners are just buying Bitcoin. The only reason we fund Coinbase is because we have to fund Coinbase. 
because we're not allowed to invest in Bitcoin directly. So, and I, I thought she was just trying to make me feel better. But looking back, she was 100% right. You know, investing in Bitcoin has been very hard to beat. If you look at investing in Coinbase or some of the other blockchain companies out there, there's very few investments that have outperformed Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's the best performing asset of the last 10 years or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, if you look at Bitcoin as an asset class and you compare it to large cap stocks, small cap stocks, REITs, bonds, cash, high yield bonds, nine out of the past 11 years, Bitcoin's been the best performing asset class out of all the other asset classes. So I know that you invest in the space more holistically. Can you kind of tell me like what you make of the Bitcoin crypto blockchain space? Maybe you can single out Bitcoin and then how it plays into the larger space as a whole for you. Yeah. So our core thesis at Off The Chain Capital is that Bitcoin will be one of the very few winners in the space. And so we think that Bitcoin's the winner for basically the reserve currency of the internet and store of value. And then the other two main winners are going to be a transactional layer that's going to be sitting on top of Bitcoin. And that transactional layer winner could be Venmo, which is a blockchain application owned by PayPal. It could be Libra, which is Facebook's token that they may eventually come out with. It could be the Chinese digital one that's going to be interoperable with public blockchains like Bitcoin, or it could be like the Lightning Network. And it's, you know, I, I personally, I think it's going to be Venmo. We hear rumors that PayPal and Venmo are about to open up their platform to buy Bitcoin, just like you could use a cash app at Square. And when that happens, there's going to be 375 million PayPal and Venmo accounts, which will have access to Bitcoin. There's only 35 million Coinbase accounts. So there's going to be almost 10 times more access to Bitcoin when that happens. And I think that that lead, that first mover lead will enable Venmo to become the transactional layer sitting on top of Bitcoin. And then the other winner, we think, is going to be a smart contract winner. And that's going to either be Ethereum, Tezos, you know, EOS, you know, one, one of the leading contenders there. Personally, I think it's Tezos that's going to be the winner. They have a much better economic incentive system than Ethereum does. And so eventually, I think Tezos becomes the second largest blockchain in market cap. For sure. Okay. So, but generally speaking, you think like the use case is money and you see viability in smart contracting. Like, is there anything else that like you're kind of like looking into or interested in, or does it really kind of have to do with that? And then, yeah. We're we're, we're really only focused on Bitcoin. We know that there's going to be a washout coming. So when you look at, the historical growth paths of new technologies like personal computers or internet or even like a long time ago, washing machines or cars or railroads back in the 1800s, they all go through the same adoption path and it's called an S-curve. And that S-curve, what happens about halfway up that growth path, you have a washout. And when I mean washout, that means all the unproductive, useless, companies or tokens in this case that don't provide utility, they go bankrupt or disappear. And so right now we have over 3,000 cryptocurrencies that are trading. After this washout phase occurs, then I would anticipate we have 10 or fewer 
dominant blockchains left. And, you know, and then that will be concentrated in probably three. Most of the market capital will be concentrated in three of those. And so, I mean, that's, that's my personal opinion. But you know, I, I do think that you know, the washout is coming. We haven't had it yet. It'll probably happen in the next two to three years. And when that occurs, most of these you know, useless blockchains will disappear. And then most of the value will accumulate into the dominant blockchains. So let's actually turn back to Bitcoin. Like, other than the, you know the the early advantage, the net, the network effects, that kind of thing, um, the ability for Bitcoin to be adopted by existing networks like PayPal and ride those network effects. Can you tell me, like, talk about like Bitcoin, the Bitcoin ecosystem, the type of innovation that's happening there, the Bitcoin culture. Like, what about it do you think makes Bitcoin primed to win, or or does it contribute at all? Yeah, so I look at Bitcoin as an investment. If you look at the Federal Reserve cryptocurrency white paper that was released in January of 2018, I think if you Google St. Louis Federal Reserve cryptocurrency white paper, it'll pop up. But in that white paper, they say specifically that Bitcoin's best use case is as a diversification instrument for investment portfolios because it's a non-correlated asset. And that's how I look at it. I look at Bitcoin as a diversification tool for investment portfolios. And basically what that means is that if you add a small amount of Bitcoin to a diversified investment portfolio, most people think that would increase the volatility, but it doesn't. Because it's a non-correlated asset, it actually reduces the volatility in investment portfolios. And then because Bitcoin has done so well over the past 10 years, if you look at the performance of that with the lower volatility, what happens is that what's called the sharp ratio, the sharp ratio is a measure of risk-adjusted returns in a portfolio. So adding a 2% allocation of Bitcoin to a portfolio actually almost doubles the sharp ratio. And if you're an investment manager, if you're a CIO or fiduciary, for portfolios, you're almost obligated or forced to add Bitcoin to your portfolio, knowing that your sharp ratio is increased. Because if, if I'm the CIO of a multi-billion dollar pension plan, and I know there's an asset that will increase my performance and lower the risk at the same time, then why wouldn't you add that to your portfolio? You're, you're, you're under a fiduciary responsibility to actually increase performance and reduce risk. And Bitcoin actually does that. And so what's preventing the CIOs today from doing that and the other fiduciaries is that they have, there's too much reputational risk and career risk with adding Bitcoin to a portfolio. You know, eventually that career risk and that reputational risk will diminish over time. And when that happens, they'll be more open to adding Bitcoin to their portfolios. And then hence the prices will go up a lot in the future. Yeah, and we're already seeing this. And I think early it was either earlier today or yesterday, Dan Tapiero tweeted out something very much along the same lines of what you just said, which was if you add a small percentage of Bitcoin into a well-diversified portfolio, it increases the sharp ratio significantly. Yeah. And then he called on pensions and you know and, and other institutions to like you have a duty to to look into this. Is it just a matter of Lindy or is yeah, it just a matter so, of time? Yeah. So, you know, when I first invested in Bitcoin in 2014, 
you know, it was like, it was new. I mean, I felt late to the party because I was buying Bitcoin $250, $300. And a year and a half earlier, it was at $10. So I was like, man, I'm late to this. I mean, it's up a lot, you know, since then. But, you know, but then it went up more. But you're right, the Lindy effect, the longer a new technology is around, the more appetite, you know, stay around, right? It's not going to disappear from underneath your feet. And so, you know, I think the Lindy effect is part of the Bitcoin history and potential going forward. It's just confidence and it's trust. You know, the longer it's Bitcoin's around, the more people are untrusted because it's a store of value. You know, as trust goes up, so does the value. So I want to kind of end it on, on a bullish note. I want to kind of talk to you about like what your expectations are for Bitcoin in this coming wave. There are chirps on Twitter that we are in a bull market. It seems like there's a lot of excitement amongst the cryptocurrency communities. What do you see in the short to medium term? Are you feeling bullish or is there a chance that something kind of like a black swan could happen? Like what are your thoughts, you know, this next coming months? Yeah, I mean, with Bitcoin, there's always volatility, right? I mean, it's, you know, it comes unexpectedly, but we are very bullish. So if you look at the history of the three Bitcoin halvings, the first two halvings, if you look at the 12 to 18 months after the 2012 and the 2016 Bitcoin halvings, those were the best 12 to 18 months to be invested in Bitcoin. And that's when you got these asymmetric returns. We're in that sweet spot again. The most recent halving was in May of this year. We think that over the next 12 to 18 months, Bitcoin's going to do very, very well. We use four models to value Bitcoin, and they've guided us in the right direction. These models in 2017 were showing us that Bitcoin was worth about $7,000, and it was worth, you know, eight, you know, it was trading for eighteen to 20000 We actually sold 80% of our assets in the fund in December 2017 and early 2018, because it was just so overvalued compared to our models. These models today say that Bitcoin's going to be between $100,000 and $260,000 over the next 12 to 18 months. And it's trading for $11,000 today. So I'm, we are very, very bullish today. We think that Bitcoin is one of the most undervalued assets in all of human history, not only on today's value, but based on our models actually show that Bitcoin in 10 years could be worth $10 million of Bitcoin. And so we think this, you know, it's one of the greatest investment opportunities ever. And you know, just owning a small amount, like 1% to 2% of your portfolio or your net worth in Bitcoin is a very appropriate way of getting exposed to this. Because if we're wrong and Bitcoin goes to zero, then you're down one or two percent on, on your on your portfolio. But if we're right and Bitcoin goes to ten million dollars, then that's why I represent a significant part of your net worth. Yeah, absolutely. I always tell people that Bitcoin either wildly succeeds or it goes to zero. There's not really right. like a middle ground. Yeah, there is no Bitcoin's not to average ten percent a year, right? It's either going to be zero or it's going to be a thousand x. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. Why don't you tell people where they can find you, who you want to hear from, and all that good stuff? Sure. Thanks for having me. So I'm the CIO of you know, Off the Chain Capital. We're an institutional and high net worth investment fund. You can get a hold of me at brian at offthechain.capital. 
And don't mind if I plug the fund a little bit, but you know, off the chain, absolutely the number one performing blockchain fund over the past one and three years in the HFRI and Vision Hill universes. You know, we're you know we're, we're very happy of that, and you know we do it in a very we do it in a value way. Basically, all we're doing is we found ways to buy Bitcoin at value prices, and you know we basically buy Bitcoin for dollars worth of Bitcoin for fifty cents, and you know we do that through all sorts of ways, and that's one of the reasons we've been able to outperform Bitcoin over the past four years. Awesome. Well, we should have jumped into that a little bit, but yeah. if you want to learn more, make sure to go contact Brian. That's awesome. And, you know, a fund that stacks sats is a fund for me. So I- I'm all about that. Get that value, Bitcoin. Again, Brian, thanks for coming on the show. And yeah. everyone, get in touch with Brian. He has an amazing story. Listen to that Palm podcast where we go into his history and all the amazing stuff that he's been through. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.